thank you for uh, gathering us together once again on the Lord's Day to worship you, to be instructed by you. I pray that you would help us to do just that, Lord, that you would help me to get out of the way so that the people can hear from you what it is that you would have to say to them today for the, from this text. Give us grace for this work. Remove all distractions. Help us to stay focused and help us to look to you and receive this word from you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so since we are jumping back in after taking a uh, week off, and since we can kind of lose sight of the forest for the trees, I want to once again mention our overall theme in our sermon series and then do a brief review of everything that we have gone over uh, thus far. So we're in a series entitled Ancestry.div, that is Ancestry.divine, and what we are doing is we're looking at everything that the Bible has to say in the pages of Scripture about our family history in the church. This is to say we're looking at everything the Bible has to say from Genesis to Revelation about who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and what our purpose is in the world as the people of God. We have seen that God intended to rule the world from the very beginning by way of a man, But sin and the fall into sin interrupted that process. But nevertheless, God has not abandoned that original plan to give man authority and rule in the world. God set apart the man Abraham for this uh, very purpose, along with his family. And while Abraham's family was down there in Egypt, they became a nation. That nation of people is the nation of Israel. Israel was delivered out of Egypt powerfully by uh, the hand of their God, and they were made promises that they would one day dwell in a land that would be theirs, and they would experience safety and security and rest from their enemies. God has also provided a place for his people to fellowship with him once again, since man has been kicked out of the garden and cut off from fellowship with God. God has now given that place back to man uh, by way of the tabernacle. We saw that the tabernacle was set up, and this is a place where God and man can once again fellowship with one another. And last time we we were together, we saw that God had uh, brought Israel all the way to the borders of the promised land at the leadership of of Moses, and indeed all the way into the promised land at the leadership of Joshua. When the book of Judges begins, Joshua has died, and the people have not as of yet went in and conquered the land in its entirety as they were supposed to. Now, while Joshua was alive, they made some good strides in subduing the people and taking dominion over their cities. But nevertheless, they did not destroy the Canaanites and they did not tear down all of the pagan idols in the land. So now you have a situation where the people of God are living in the land next to their enemies and there's all these pagan idol shrines around them where the people worship false gods. Now, before Joshua died, the people had set up the tabernacle in Shiloh that I just mentioned prior. So they had a place where they could go and worship the true God. And we have seen that when uh, the people of God worship the true God rightly, that he conquers their enemies. We have seen that uh, when they walk in faithfulness and obedience to their God, as he has commanded them to do so in his word, that he conquers their enemies. But if they do not, he conquers them instead. Well, after Joshua dies, the generation who went into the land under his leadership, and, the, uh, and uh, they die along with Joshua, 
and there's another generation that comes up who does not know the Lord. And here we have this um, generation of Israelites who do not know the Lord. They're in the midst of a pagan land. They're surrounded by all this idolatry with no one to lead them. So guess what? They go into idolatry and they abandon the Lord. And throughout the rest of the book of Judges, what we have is sort of an Israelite wild, wild west. Every man does what is right in his his own eyes is the constant refrain at the end of the book uh, because there's no king in Israel during that time. And what happens over and over again is the people begin to be oppressed by their enemies. They will cry out to God to save them and He will send them a deliverer and that deliverer will come in the form of a man, a judge, and He will grant them some peace and some deliverance from their enemies, but He does not grant them any true and lasting victory. And so whenever that deliverer dies, the people go back into rebellion and idolatry once again. And right in the middle of this cycle of judges, we have the story of Gideon, the story that we are talking about today. And Gideon gives us a glimpse of what a true leader, what a righteous ruler slash king type figure in Israel is supposed to look like. At this point in Israel's history, they have been under the yoke of the Midianites, their enemies, for seven years. So this is the group that is oppressing them at this particular Time, the Midianites. The oppression of the Midianites was so bad that the people had to go and live in rocks and in caves. And every time they would begin to get a crop going for themselves, the Midianites would come up and take that crop from them. So they're living in very hard situations and being starved, as it were. Moreover, they've turned to the gods of the Canaanites and they've ended up in all sorts of idolatry. And finally... In their agony, they cry out to God to save them, and God raises up Gideon. God comes to Gideon as the angel of of the Lord, and he tells Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver the people. And at first, Gideon's apprehensive. He's making excuses like Moses. Remember the excuses Moses made when God called on him? He says, I'm the least in my father's house. My clan is the weakest. And he wants God to show him a sign that he's going to be with him, just like Moses, right? And so he prepares this meal, which in ancient times is known as a peace offering. And the peace offering shows that God is at peace with his people and that they have been restored to fellowship with him and that he's on their side. So after he prepares this meal, this peace offering, the angel of the Lord taps it with his staff in his hand and it goes up in flames and then the angel vanishes. And this is a sign to Gideon that God is going to be with him to deliver the people. And the first thing that God has Gideon do is destroy false worship and institute proper worship. Destroy false worship and institute proper worship in its place. We see that in verses 25 through 27, if you look back there with me. Verse 25, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order, And then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So here Gideon is told to chop down the pagan idol and to destroy the altar of the false god. And he is to build the altar of God on top of that false altar and offer up a sacrifice there on behalf of the people. So let's unpack that. God tells him to destroy the altar of Baal. 
In the ancient Near East, Baal was uh, the storm god. He controlled things like the rain and the lightning. And so he controlled the economy. And therefore, if the people wanted it to rain so that crops could be produced, they would petition Baal, the storm god. So if they were in a situation like we were in not too long ago, where we had too much rain, they might start trying to finagle this god Baal through various rituals to shut the rain off. And if they were in a drought-like season, they uh, would petition this god Baal through various types of rituals to get him to turn uh, the rain back on. And Asherah was a female pagan fertility god. This is the Asherah that's next to Baal. She's a female pagan fertility god, supposedly one of Baal's wives. And when the people wanted to be fruitful and multiply, when they wanted their wives and their animals to have children, they would petition Asherah. And Asherah would be represented in the, in, uh, the form of a wooden pole-like uh, structure. So here, God tells Gideon to go in and destroy the altar of Baal and to chop down the image of his wife Asherah and to make an altar to the true God Yahweh on top of it, and then to offer a sacrifice on it using the wood from the idol to light the fire. And it's interesting to note that he tells Gideon to use the same bull that he uses to tear down the altar to offer up the sacrifice. We just saw that in 25 and 26. So what's going on here? Same bull, same bull tears down the altar, and then that bull is used as a sacrifice on the new altar. Well, for one, it's, it's a seven-year-old bull. And how long have the people been in rebellion while they're under the oppression of the Midianites? For seven years. And in the Old Testament, a bull was represent, it would be offered up on, uh, as a representative of the whole people in sacrifice. And that tells us this bull is offered up as a representative of the people there who had been in rebellion for seven years against God. Moreover, that same bull that was used, to pull down, uh, was used to pull down the altar of Baal. So therefore, God uses this bull for two things. To atone for the sins of the people and to destroy their enemies. Got that? Uses it to tear down the altar and then it's offered as a sacrifice. So to forgive their sins and to destroy their enemies. Same bull. Finally, uh, we note that the uh, he builds the altar of Yahweh on top of the altar of Baal. And he uses their idol Asherah for firewood. So what's this a picture of? Well, right here at the beginning, we see that God has called Gideon to destroy false worship and to set proper worship up in its place. And why would he do that? Well, because as we have seen, everything stems from right worship, right? When we worship God rightly in the way that he has told us to do so, he conquers our enemies. When we walk in obedience and faithfulness to God as he has told us to do so, he conquers our enemies. So God begins with reinstituting proper worship in Israel. Essentially, the battle is won right here in worship. Okay? And what God does next is he sends Gideon out to cleanse the land of wickedness and idolatry so that proper worship can begin happening all over the place. Because the only way that Israel will ever experience any true and lasting victory over their enemies is if they worship God rightly. The next thing I want to point out is that that when Gideon acts courageously like this, his family and the people around him get behind him and do the same. We see that in verses uh, 31 through 35. 
Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? It's actually Baal, uh, but I'll say Baal. That's how we typically say it today. Um, Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Yerub Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. So here we see Joash, Gideon's uh, father, uh, get behind him. not only Joash, but the Abizarites, which would have been the men in his town, which if his relatives were there, they would have been included. And then men from all Israel get behind Gideon as he goes out in the land to fight this war against idolatry. They follow him in it. His father says, if Baal is God, let him kill Gideon himself. You see, Joash has changed sides here. Uh, he's mocking Baal at this point. He's saying, if, if Baal's a, don't, don't lay a hand on Gideon. If Baal's a real God, let him do it himself. Right? Uh, and from this point on, Gideon's called uh, Yerub Baal, that is, let Baal contend, that is, let Baal come and fight against him. Uh, from this point on, Gideon becomes a Baal fighter, and uh, his, his family and the church get behind him. Finally, I want to mention that Gideon looks for a supernatural sign that God is with him. Supernatural sign that God is with him. In verses 36 through 40, we see that. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me, Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So what is Gideon doing here by asking God to perform this sign and then to reverse it? Well, again, you have to understand the context of Gideon's ministry. The people are worshiping Baal and Asherah. And Baal and Asherah are kind of these impersonal, naturalistic gods who work through natural processes in the universe. And these people have a naturalistic view of the world. They basically think that the universe is in control of everything. And so if they want rain, they petition the storm god. And if they want fertility, they petition the fertility god. And they will get children. And these gods work through natural processes. Therefore, the first sign Gideon is given could have been performed by one of these naturalistic gods. It's quite possible that the fleece that's made of wool could be left sopping wet there on the ground in the morning through natural processes, right? It might soak up all the dew on the ground and be wet, and everything else around it could be dry. It's possible, right? But to reverse the process the next day would take the intervention of a supernatural, personal god who controls all things, where the rain goes, when it comes, where the dew is found, and where it is found on the ground in the morning. He, co- he controls everything right down to particular instances. So again, Yahweh here is confirming that God 
that he is God and Baal is not. God controls the entire universe. Not only does he control where the rain goes and where it comes, but he controls the amount of dew left on the ground and where it is found. Now, granted, uh, Gideon is weak in faith here, and God is using this sign to bolster the faith of Gideon to make him into a warrior for his name's sake. Well, guess what happens? Without going into it all, Gideon becomes that warrior. He goes on a holy war on behalf of the God of Israel, and the people experience 40 years of rest underneath the watch of Gideon. So what are some things that we can learn from Gideon and his story? What are some things that we can learn from his story? First of all, in Gideon's day, worship had been perverted. The people were no longer just worshiping Yahweh in their homes and in their churches, but their worship now included the worship of Baal and Asherah. A little Baal here and a little Asherah there. And I want to tell you, it is no different in the society in which we are living today. You say, how, how so, Pastor Chris? Well, how about this despicable prosperity stuff that we hear being preached in our day? The God of the prosperity gospel is just another Baal. We want a God who we can get to bend to our will, right? A God who will serve us and do what we want Him to do whenever we call on Him. And the God of the prosperity gospel is just that God. We'll call this new Baal for the sake of our discussion today the prosperity God. And isn't this what drives our culture today? We're consumed with this idea in our world today that the most important thing is that we live our best lives now, right? And the God of the prosperity gospel is willing to give it to us. What we've done in America today is we've rejected the God of the Bible for a God who will give us what we want. We want a God who doesn't interfere with our personal affairs. We want a God who... Uh, leaves us alone. We kind of want this invisible sky daddy who's up there in the sky and he just gives us candy whenever we're good, right? But any other time, we don't want him to bother us. But if we get into a tight situation, if we get into a bind, we want to call on him. Um, If we need a loan for a new house or or for a new car, we call on him. Um, If we want him to, if we want the, if we want the game to, we want to win the game or whatever, we'll call on him in those instances. But any other time, we don't want nothing to do with them. Don't bother me. Don't bother me. We want a God that we can manipulate. And the prophets of the prosperity gospel tell us that, that we can do just that. They say, sow your, give us a thousand dollars. Sow your seed of a thousand dollars today and watch God Turn it into $10,000 in 10 days. They sound like some sort of a bad used car salesman or something, right? In the end, we're only left with some sort of a used old raggly prayer cloth that's anointed by one of their so-called super apostles, and we're out a thousand bucks, right? It's always the story at the end of the day. And the God of the Bible is not a God that we can bend or manipulate. He is God over all, and He does as He wills with His creation. And He has required some things of us. He requires of us obedience, and He requires of us faithfulness. He requires uncompromising devotion, just as He did with Gideon. And we also have some Asherahs in our day. What are some of the Asherah poles in our 
land today. She was the god of fertility, right? The fertility god. And when the people wanted to, um, to be fruitful and multiply, when they wanted life, they would go to this fertility god. So what are some of the ways that we have sought life and fruitfulness outside? today, what are some of the ways that we can be courageous? Now, this application is specifically for the men um, here today, and men in the church in general. Men, we've been called to lead, and when we fail to do that, we fail to take up the responsibilities that God has given us in our homes and in the church and in the world. We're sending a message to the culture of our day. We're saying that these things don't matter. We're saying that it doesn't matter if men are leaders. It doesn't matter if men will act like men. It doesn't matter if men are courageous for the sake of God. And guess who takes up that role when we don't? It's the radical feminist of our day. They've been taking it up and they are taking it up. And as a result, our women and children suffer. We have a hard time finding male leaders in the church today to do the work that only God has called men to do. And when women end up taking up these roles that they're not called to take up and doing these things that they have not been created to do, you end up with all sorts of compromise in the church. Before you know it, you end up with uh, things like gay marriage in the church and lesbian bishop pastors and all the rest, since the ministry of the Word of God becomes effeminate. And when that happens, when the ministry of the Word of God becomes effeminate, the world and the culture and the church follow suit. But how about in the home? Is it important for men to be men in the home? Is it important for men to be fathers? Is it important if you have a dad in your home? You better believe it. Half the kids in our schools are growing up in homes with single moms. Did you know that? 
Why is this? Because dads are not stepping up and taking the responsibility that they have as fathers in the home. And therefore, children do not have a family unit in the home. They don't have the structure that God has created for them to have a healthy home. They don't have a father and a mother and the influence that they need from both of these people in their lives so that they can grow and develop properly and so they act out. Since they don't have a biblical man in their life to be a role model for them, they seek out this this sort of acceptance in other relationships among their peers. Uh, they, they try to find acceptance in things like the drug culture and in gangs and in all-inclusive communities like the LGBT who tout acceptance, and that's why so many see so many men going there. They get the acceptance that they've been looking for. And this is why it is important for men to be men. For if we stand up and act like men... We could lead a revival in our land that will shape the history of our people for a generation. Uh, one, one last thing I will mention just briefly is that Gideon sought a sign from God to bolster his faith in the work that God had called him to do. Remember the story of the fleece, right? Now, now prior to the completion of the Bible, God ordinarily worked in the realm of the miraculous through these miraculous Signs, But once the Bible was completed and we had God's uh, total revelation to us in the pages of Scripture, he is not ordinarily working in this way anymore. So where are we to look now for God to confirm his promises to us and to bolster our faith? We look to the word of God. We have the whole story right here from cover to cover in the pages of Scripture, and we have the luxury of being able to look back on all that God has done and all that God has said. We can even look at the things that God has said about how he's going to work in the future, right here in the Word of God. But there are many in our day who are still looking for a sign. Their their faith is, is based on some sort of an emotional experience or some sort of encounter that they've had with God, and they're always looking for this thing in the world and everywhere that they go. The problem is God does not ordinarily work in this way anymore. Now this is, this is not to say that in supernatural, uh, that God in an extraordinary circumstance, that he might not intervene and work supernaturally, but ordinarily he works in the world through the means that he has appointed for the day in which we are living, word and sacrament. But he has not left us without any signs. He has given us two signs to encourage and bolster our faith today. Does anybody know what they are? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. Two signs for us today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, God is pointing us back to everything that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. He is reminding us of all that he's accomplished for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, he's, appoint, he's pointing us to his abiding presence here with us. He's reminding us that he's with us. Remember, that's what Gideon was looking for? Excuse me. Here at the Lord's Supper, God meets us to strengthen us and to embolden us to do the work that he's called us to do in the world today, just as he did for Gideon in his day. Friends, just as God came at the uh, beginning of our story and confirmed his promises to Gideon, he, he, he confirmed that he was going to be with him through a meal, through a peace offering. So he does today. The Lord's Supper is the 
uh, New Covenant peace offering. It is the meal where God comes to fellowship with us, to meet with us, to show us that he is our friend, that he is on our side, that he is going to be with us, and that he is with us. And Jesus Christ is that bull in the beginning of our story that was offered up on the altar for the sins of the people. Moreover, he is the bull that destroys the altar of Baal. That is, he destroys our enemies. It's through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that God has forgiven all of our sin and disarmed our enemies, and he's trampled them underfoot for us, giving us victory over them. So, forgiveness and deliverance from our enemies, all in one place. And just as Gideon was anointed by the Spirit after the altar was pulled down and the sacrifice had been offered, we too have been anointed by the Spirit on Pentecost after Jesus Christ died for us, his death on the cross on Calvary, where he destroyed all the strongholds and cast down our enemies. Jesus comes to us here at his table by his Spirit to confirm the promise of his forgiveness to us and to strengthen us as we are sent off into the world now to cleanse the world of wickedness and idolatry through the preaching of the gospel so that proper worship may begin to take place all over the world now. It's the same story all over again. And Jesus comes to us here at his table to meet with us and encourage us just as he met with Gideon in the wool of the fleece on the threshing floor.